Propaniacs. Welcome to Propaniacs, the King of the Hill podcast. This episode is brought to you by Rivera's Sump Pumps. Hey, dump that chump and pump that sump. Today, we poke our heads out of the shells of our repression and into the penultimate episode of King of the Hill Season 2, Peggy's Turtle Song. I'm your host, Melton McManerberry, and in case you missed the announcement in the last episode, it's just me, fellow Propaniacs. Daisy has had to check out at least for a time. It's a drag, but the show must go on, so let's get into this episode. In the first scene, we're in the kitchen where Bobby is eating Grandma's Oatmeal Cookie Crunch Cereal. Bobby evidently drinks not just the milk, but the cereal itself, by the way, because you can see lots of cereal in the bowl when he picks it up and tosses it back, and none of the bowl when he puts it down. This kid is a pro at eating Grandma's Oatmeal Cookie Crunch Cereal. Nice touch, too, is he skillfully opens the pantry with his foot as he's putting the cereal box back. Definitely seems like he's done this morning routine before. But as the scene progresses, a couple of key things happen. One right on the surface, and another that's easier to miss. Bobby eats, by my count, four total bowls. And these are big bowls of Grandma's Oatmeal Cookie Crunch cereal. Obviously a very sugary cereal by itself, and then plus some quantity of added sugar with his last helping for Hank's encouragement. The second thing that happens, Hank expresses mild displeasure at Peggy's leaving without cooking breakfast for Bobby, if you noticed. And one might ask why Hank can't cook breakfast for Bobby himself. But no one else in the episode is really going to ask that, at least not in the Hill household. There are plenty of questions and struggles revolving around women's roles in this episode that are kind of centered around some different questions. It never gets as far as to ask why Hank can't do the cooking, put it that way. The next scene is at Tom Landry Middle School. We learn here that it's almost Mother's Day in the episode, another aspect that's central to the episode's main theme. So in this next scene, we're in the school nurse's office, and Bobby is misdiagnosed with ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder, when obviously to us, what's really happening is he has just had way too much sugar that morning. I think this is a little jab at the tendency of the culture to overdiagnose versus maybe a more moderate approach. Similar to Twig Boy's jump conclusion that Bobby was being abused in the pilot episode, when in fact he really had just gotten a black eye playing baseball. So sometimes it is the easy and obvious answer, and that's the case here. It feels at this point like this is going to be the episode's main theme, Hank versus cultural overreaction. But we quickly see in the next scene that Bobby's misdiagnosis was just a means to an end. Because we're in the bedroom and his misdiagnosis drives Peggy's guilt that leads her to question her working outside the home. And of course, that's where this episode ends up going. Anyone think of The Simpsons on this? I think of that as a Simpsons hallmark, spending the first few minutes of an episode with lots of plot and misdirection before finally landing on the main plot line. That happens here. We're about three minutes into the episode before we have more than a subtle hint that the episode is going to be about Peggy's struggles balancing her roles and the expectations on her. And the writer of this episode, Brent Forrester, did work on The Simpsons, so maybe I'm onto something there? Anyway, I, I like it. I've always liked that about The Simpsons, how it kept you off balance and guessing early in an episode, and I like it here. By the way, Hank has some great lines in this episode. Hat tip to Brent Forrester, the writer, assuming he wrote those lines. Here's some examples. Hank says, well, it is called attention deficit disorder. Maybe the boy's not getting enough attention. Another, now wait a minute, Peggy. Crazy is a strong word. You're just thinking out loud. Bobby is crazy. We had, Hank had called him a moron in the last episode, if you remember. Another, my own mom never worked a day in her life home. That's what mattered to her. And she just kept making it stronger every day until the divorce. How clueless is this guy, right? So especially with those first two about Bobby, it's a good balance against the idea the episode initially introduced, that tendency to overreact and overdiagnose. Because Hank isn't invested enough in his son's issues 
even though those aren't really his issues, to understand what they actually mean. So and then also with the last, Hank's family values, he even uses that phrase later in the episode, conservatism has him too starry-eyed to see anything like a grounded reality. We remember this from the last episode, Life in the Fast Lane, Bobby's Saga, the same thing happened regarding work values for his son. There's excellent grounding in this scene as we are led as the viewers to think of this decision of Peggy's to quit her job as a major step for the Hills. And it is that in a sense, but that sense is not financial. Peggy's logic makes her annual salary the same order of magnitude as a pair of glasses and the office football pool. (laughs) So the grounding here is that, truth be told, Peggy doesn't really make a lot of money at what she thinks of as a career. All right, some disclaimers, right? Bonafide careers don't have to earn a lot of money, and this decision can still have major weight for Peggy and for the whole family without the financial consequences being heavy. Nevertheless, I think this is bonafide grounding because the issue's import does get pulled back a little bit when she makes this comment about the glasses in the football pool. I do think it's a deliberate move because that sort of move is King of the Hill's MO. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast. How King of the Hill takes things that could be very big and dramatic and always keeps them small. So the next scene is Bobby's bedroom. Hank is educating Bobby about a disorder he himself doesn't understand at all. Bobby's ADD or his supposed ADD. We've seen a lot in King of the Hill that Bobby knows more about drugs than Hank does. And that shows up again here. In Junkie Business, Bobby attributed his knowledge of drugs to the vast quantity of former athletes that have visited his school. But the contrast is nice because Hank is way out of his element here, and Bobby is much more comfortable, for better or for worse, with the idea of taking drugs than Hank is. Next in the kitchen, we need a name for this King of the Hill trope. It's when Hank's otherwise maybe fringy position on an issue is pushed closer to the center by another character's being further out on the wings than Hank's. That happens here, as Hank has to inject some common sense into Luann's overreaction to the idea that Bobby's on medication. It's kind of double ironic because... Bobby hasn't even had the pills yet at this point. He hasn't even taken them. And Luann is already reacting as though he had and overreacting as though he had. So Hank in this scene is eating up the new, more domestic Peggy. He calls the pancakes, eggs, and bacon in multiple facial expressions that she cooks an old-fashioned family breakfast. So speaking of overreaction, this is a weak spot for Hank that we've seen before, and he quickly overestimates what's going on here. I mean, Peggy dons a frilly apron and makes pancakes one morning, and Hank immediately thinks she's June Cleaver. By the way, side note, Leave it to Beaver gets a bad rap on this. It seems like the go-to stand-in for this mid-20th century, middle-class, white American television show that portrayed all these unrealistic ideals about family life and so on. I mean, there was a lot of that in there, but that's not really what Leave it to Beaver was. I will go to bad for Leave it to Beaver. That was a great show. It's hard. It's really about an awkward boy struggling to relate to his father and his all-American older brother. The latter doesn't apply to King of the Hill, but the former sure does. There is a lot of Leave it to Beaver in King of the Hill. In a good way. But anyway, Hank's overzealousness about family values is immediately grounded in this scene because while Peggy has now time to cook a big breakfast, Bobby still has to make the same school bus, and he, in fact, doesn't even have time to eat it. In other words, Peggy's role has changed, but no one told the rest of reality, and it just keeps doing what it was doing before. A couple of scenes later, in someone's living room, Peggy, as the new stay-at-home mom, is having tea or coffee with presumably other stay-at-home moms, and they are creepy. With that whole couponing thing? Yeah. By the way, Peggy's quotable quote, she submitted a Reader's Digest. Is this the beginning of her penchant for her later famous musings? A genius is born, folks. You're seeing it right here in this episode. Back in the Hills living room, Bobby is now totally stoned looking at these checker pieces. It's family game time, a family sing-along, and Hank thinks he's died and gone to Mayberry. 
After taking almost two full seasons off, Betsy has now been in consecutive episodes. Thanks, Guitar. And it's good to have her back. Speaking of, he has to take her to Earl's Guitars for new strings. Peggy goes with him, and she's wearing that jacket the Boggle Boosters got her in Peggy the Boggle Champion. So is Earl of Earl's Guitars Layaway Ray? Did anybody else notice that? Was he the same guy? I mean, Layaway Ray did go trout of business in Jumping Greg Bass. So Hank says about Peggy's new stay-at-home role, It's longer hours and less pay, but you don't hear me complaining. Wow, now that's cringeworthy. He's not complaining, but never mind how Peggy is feeling about it. But similar to Hank's idealism in the previous episode, Life in the Fast Lane, his idealism makes him oblivious even to the idea of questioning how things are working in reality. In the next scene, Peggy goes to the Casa Villa apartments for a guitar lesson. And this is where we meet, and we don't know her name yet, but we meet Emily, Peggy's guitar teacher. So Emily is tattooed. She has short, kind of spiky green hair and dress that cannot be called conservative. I think Emily is a reference to something that was a big part of the culture of that time, certainly the pop music culture of the late 90s. I mean, this is certainly alive and well today also, but it seemed like a specific thing that was happening around the time of the episode. That movement was of independent singer-songwriter type angry feminist musician. There was a popular music festival around that time called Lilith Fair, and that's basically what it was, or what it was known as. Kind of a Gen X women's lib thing. Acts that would have been associated with that movement were, I mean, not that all these attended Lilith Fair specifically, but part of that movement would have been names like Alanis Morissette, Sarah McLaughlin, Liz Fair. That always confused me, by the way, because Liz Fair's name sounds a lot like the Lilith Fair festival's name. Anyway, Fiona Apple, Natalie Merchant, artists like that. And and so Emily's voice actor is Annie DeFranco, who herself is a singer-songwriter of that era. So Emily seems to be referencing all that. She seems to be referencing and representing that specific movement in this episode. And needless to say, this is a movement that Peggy has no familiarity with or knowledge of whatsoever. So Peggy really has no idea what she's getting into here. Not that there's anything wrong with what she's getting into, per se. But it's important to the episode to recognize that any connection this has to any larger movement is utterly lost on Peggy. Peggy, who, by the way, mentions her husband no less than three times in the first couple of minutes of this conversation. So you see very quickly that there's a pretty significant disconnect here. Next in the alley, Hank and the Greek chorus are gathered, and Hank is bragging about the decidedly conservative turn that this episode has taken, with this reference to pies cooling on all of the windowsills in his house. Did this ever actually happen in real life? My mom cooked her share of pies when I was growing up, and I don't think I ever saw one cooling on a windowsill. Why would you even do that? Unless you were in a Bugs Bunny cartoon where stealing pies from windowsills was a gag you wanted to set up. Just put it on a cooling rack on the counter. <laughs> Much less likely to fall off or get stolen by neighborhood ne'er-do-well children. So in this scene, Dale names both feminism as a larger movement and an incorrectly named Gloria Steinbrenner, specifically as the root cause of what he sees as a problem of women working outside the home. And when he says that, who shows up not, but none other than the feminist guitar teacher, Emily, to push against this poorly supported sexist structure the guys are building in this scene. So she goes to the house and goes into the kitchen and sitting at their little kitchen table with Peggy. And Peggy introduces the inspiration for this episode's title. And that is this song that she's writing. And it's just a brilliant bit of writing by Brent Forrester. It's her song about a turtle trapped in its own shell. I'm going to state the obvious here, but it's just so brilliant that I have to. The song is clearly about Peggy herself being trapped at home as a stay-at-home mom. And Peggy has absolutely no idea that's what the song is about. This gag runs throughout the rest of the episode until the very end, and it is amazing. Only Peggy could have that low of a degree of self-awareness. It's so low, no one else realizes she herself doesn't get it. It is beautiful. 
Well, anyway, a couple of scenes later, and the Hills have Emily over for dinner. So they're eating in the dining room. The, the Hills have a guest room over for dinner, so it's definitely a dining room occasion. Stoned and exhausted, Bobby is hilarious in this scene. The open eye sleeping, the automatic sticking of his tongue out to get his pill, and best of all, the total lack of concern from anyone else at the table. Yeah, this is where he missed Daisy. Something tells me Daisy would push back against the humor that I see in this depiction of this overly medicated Bobby. But I have to say, I do find it very funny. Uh, something I had never noticed until preparing for this Propaniacs episode is that the recital that Peggy ends up going to to sing her turtle song is at none other than, did you catch this? Earl's. The back room at Earl's. Earl's evidently has a back room for concerts. Who knew? And that's where this recital takes place. So this recital, this event, not only pushes against Hank's conservatism and sexism, it does so basically on what he would consider his turf. Earl's is one of the places he goes to hang out with people like him. And now Emily is taking it over? What's next? Women drivers? The next scene is in the living room, and I was giving Peggy a hard time earlier about how oblivious she was to the message in her own song. But is Hank oblivious too? This is the sort of thing I'd love to hear Daisy's answer to. Here's my question. Why is Hank so irritated by Peggy's practicing her song? Is it what he says, that the song just isn't upbeat enough? Or does he actually get the meaning and resent it because of what it says about him? So it's interesting, because in either case, Hank's clueless. He either doesn't get the song himself, just like Peggy, or... He does get it and doesn't get his own reaction to it. So there is plenty of obliviousness to go around in this episode. There's a good understated example in this scene of something we talk about a lot on this podcast, how Hank often functions as the critical eye through which King of the Hill is satirizing the culture. And Hank's views are often the object of satire. It's similar to Mike Judge's other animated show, Beavis and Butthead, in that it's often not clear exactly who the butt of the joke is. So the example in this scene is Hank makes the statement, I thought we agreed to take a step backwards together. And Hank's use of the word backwards there is essentially an acknowledgement by the show to the viewer that Hank's idealistic return to family values is misguided. Of course, Hank doesn't know that, but it's a clever setup and a clever thing about King of the Hill. Hank can be both the critic as a proxy for the viewer and the object of criticism for the viewer. And the latter is the case here. Next scene is in the kitchen. Hank is calling his mom because it's Mother's Day. So Hank's mom, who we know from the unbearable blindness of laying, is less conservative than Hank, at least now. Puts some scratches in Hank's rose-colored glasses by correcting some of his memories about his childhood. And Hank is running out of places to turn to find someone on his side, besides the alley, I guess, but the guy's support never substantial for Hank. A few scenes later, Hank is in Peggy's office, which is really the utility closet, the water heater room. And Peggy's 1996 Substitute Teacher of the Year trophy provides inspiration as it has so many times before as Hank takes to heart some visual reminders of what Peggy has given up to stay home full time. Throwback to Square Peg, the second episode of King of the Hill. Well, finally, we get to Earl's guitars into the back room because it's time for this recital. And Peggy hears the content of the act who's before her, and she still doesn't get what this event she's singing at is. So the stage is set for some serious embarrassment here, but the accidental meaning in Peggy's song serves her well, even though, again, she doesn't realize that's what's happening. It's great. The sincere dedication to her husband that is received as sarcasm as Peggy starts her song is the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae that is this brilliant setup. Now, at one point, Peggy is singing a song she legitimately thinks is only about a turtle, and someone in the audience yells, Fight corporate white male oppression! 
And that's when this glass fully shatters for Peggy, Hank, and Bobby, and they realize that Peggy is at an angry feminist event. Not that there's anything wrong with that, or that white corporate male oppression isn't a worthy cause to fight against. It's just a long way from where Peggy's actual struggle lives in this episode. The scale is way off, several steps beyond any she's close to taking, and that disconnect disorients her such that she clings to the most stable thing she can immediately find. And what is that? The magical love of a turtle named Hank. Hank's loving gesture of lending Peggy a newly repaired Betsy, which was a terrible idea, by the way. Peggy definitely shouldn't change guitars right before the performance rather than using the one she's been practicing on all along. But anyway, that detail aside, that loving gesture and his gesture of just showing up and supporting her is well-received by Peggy. And she and Hank come to a respectful reconciliation, a la Square Peg, an early episode that this, as we've mentioned, this one has a lot in common with. So I give this episode... Eight, big fat goober smooches. I really like this episode. It's funny. It's complex. It's Peggy at her best. And shout out to Kathy Najimi's killer voice acting as Peggy in this episode. How she conveys the below the surface struggle Peggy is having, and especially how she voices Peggy's nervous yet somehow empowered singing voice at the recital. Absolutely brilliant. This episode had a lot of great one-liners too, most of which we didn't specifically mention, but great writing and fun stuff. Okay, Propaniacs, I'm going to go tuck my head back into the safety inside. Why don't you do the same, and I'll meet you back here for the Season 2 finale, Propane Boom Part 1. Oh, and if you find yourself in a moment of terrible doubt, flip over to my other podcast, Nashville Anthems, dissecting 80s and 90s country music. See you next time.